We're going to just read one verse out of Revelation 2. It'll be the 11th verse as the Lord speaks to the church at Smyrna there. We'll just read that one statement that he makes. Those ones that we're considering, uh, again, to him that overcomes. That's in verse 11 for this church. So Revelation 2 and verse 11, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let's bow our heads together once again. Heavenly Father, we're grateful, Lord, for the word that you give to your people. Father, we're grateful, Lord, even if we consider those things that have been fundamental and basic and well understood by us, Father, in those times that you represent those things to us, Lord, you have something more for us to take from those things. Even if it's just encouragement, Father, the encouragement that comes from your hand is something that is a blessing to us. So help us to be encouraged. Help us to be lifted up, Father. Help us to be edified. Help us to know what we perhaps didn't know. Whatever it is that you have for us individually to take from your word tonight, help us to take it, Father, and take it wholly and live in this abundance. We praise you, Father, for it. Bless us in our fellowship tonight, I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week we considered that, well, we looked at the tree of life, didn't we? Back when we were considering the church there at Ephesus. Uh, that tree of life, that in whatever manifestation, whatever form it was, what it, seems that it was an actual tree, seems that it actually had fruit, seems that if you ate that fruit you were going to live forever, as it's presented there in Genesis. We considered that it was a picture of Jesus, and that it was a picture of um, well, his representation, his presentation of the fruit that we can take, eternal life and, and those sorts of things found only in him we understand. Um, tonight we're going to look at, well, we're going to consider something that's rather basic, rather fundamental it seems. If, if this is your first foray into Revelation, I doubt that it is for most of you here, if not all of you. If it's your first exposure to these churches, if it's your first exposure to these things and some of the concepts, I am confident that there are a number of different terms and presentations that are here that can be confusing and take some time and some effort to line things up and connect the dots, as it were, even in considering the Tree of Life last week. Tonight, well, Emily just prayed a moment ago, you know, help us to not be bogged down in these middle, midweek uh, lessons. It takes work. It's not lost on me that it takes work after you have been at work for well, perhaps three days if you work a nine to five, Monday through Friday. It takes some time and some effort to take your mind and put together some of the things that, that are a little bit deeper to consider and, and take some effort. Tonight, I don't think it's going to take a lot of effort. It's something that's rather familiar to us. It's one of, well, about the only one of these seven that really is just fundamental and basic to us and doesn't take a lot of work, but I'm grateful for those things that the Lord gives to us. And since we considered that tree of life last week, well, we recognize again that it's some form, some presentation of the Lord Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We understand that if this tree of life somehow offers life to those who partake of it, eternal life being only that 
Well, it can only be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. We're going to consider what eternal death is, the opposite of that. Then if he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, then again, it has to be some manifestation, some presentation and representation of the Lord Jesus in whatever manner that might be. Tonight, we're moving to that second statement. Now, one that says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And we understand this if you consider... Well, the simplicity of the statement, I'm grateful for the simplicity of that statement because, well, no believer, no believer is going to be hurt by the second death. This is a blessing that, along with some of these other ones, you can have some of these blessings and not be that fully victorious one that we're considering here. When I was a kid, I thought my dad was super wise when he was super wise, but I really thought that he was in the moment when he told me, he, uh, he was explaining to me about what a jet plane was. And he says, well, he was explaining everything. And then at one time, I don't remember much of any of the other thing that he said at the time, but I remember him saying, well, Greg, you understand that uh, all jet planes are airplanes, but not all airplanes are jets. And I was like, say that again? <laughs> he said... All airplanes, or all jet planes are airplanes, but not all airplanes are jets. And I'm like, that's brilliant, man. It's so, it's so enlightening, you know. And I, and I thought it was just so profound, you know. Well, you do understand that all those who finish, well, finish their course fully victorious are going to enjoy this blessing. Uh, well, let me say it this way. Not all, I'm still thinking jet planes. Not all believers are going to be fully victorious. It's an unfortunate thing. All fully victorious believers start out believers. You see what I'm saying? Not all jet planes, or not all airplanes are jet planes. Not all jet... Oh, see, I'm confusing myself. Forget the planes, guys. Forget them. <laughs> Forget it. Getting just very frank about it. Not all believers are going to be able to, well, are not going to receive all of these statements of blessing that the Lord is presenting here. The fully victorious one will have all of them. The fully victorious one will have gathered all of these together. And all believers can enjoy the blessing and will enjoy the blessing, no matter if they never take another step of being unhurt by the second death. If that was at all confusing to you, please come and see me and I will explain it better later. This is a promise, what I'm trying to say to all believers, even those ones who don't love the Lord's appearing, who don't live for His appearing, who don't pursue that crown of life that is promised to any who will pursue that. And so I'm grateful for that. This is a basic fundamental truth for us, and I'm grateful for the basics and the fundamentals that the Lord offers to us. Now, to understand what this in, means, if you, well, if you do find yourself struggling with this, and if not, just to review, in order to understand what this second death is speaking of, well, you have to differentiate it from the first death then, right? Um, have an understanding of what that is. You can be turning to Hebrews chapter 9. Um, actually, I'm going to send you to Genesis chapter 2, because Hebrews chapter 9 you can read there, and I don't have Genesis 2 in, in, on a slide, so I'll send you to Genesis chapter 2. But the first death, if you want to just simplify it, it is that death that we die in the flesh as a result of the sin that's in our members. Uh, now you understand, not all are going to see it, Elijah didn't see death, Enoch didn't see death, and those ones who will be gathered up in that time of the Lord's coming, they're not going to see death. But that first death is that sin that we all have purchased for ourselves. Adam misstepped, Adam sinned, and he introduced death into the human race, but we took it for our own selves as well in our own sin. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed for men to die once. 
But after that, the judgment. We understand that this death is something that, well, this is going to be really kind of a Debbie Downer kind of statement, but from the time we're born, you know, we're kind of in the process of dying. You know, babies come out and you see them growing and becoming beautiful, and then at some point you reach the top of the hill, and then after that you're over the hill, right? And you kind of feel like midlife is when you're heading towards death. No, the expiration date's already set. It's already understood. I mean, you're, you're born and you're heading towards that last moment again, should the Lord tarry for that moment. Because death was introduced by that man, Adam. Genesis chapter 2, I'll take you to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. After he'd created all of those things, created the animals, and put the man, man and woman there to take care of it, oversee it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And you understand what happened after that. The serpent came and beguiled Eve, told her, No, you won't die, it won't happen, etc., etc. And still to this day, a number of people will say, Well, look, they ate the fruit, they didn't die. Death was introduced, and the expiration date was set. On the day that you partake of that and introduce sin to your life, introduce that understanding of evil when you didn't know it before, sin was brought in to mankind. And as a result, as I said, there is a shelf life that is set on each man. Genesis 3.19, after both of them did partake, in the sweat of your face, the Lord said to the man, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. You were dust. He gathered it together and breathed, breathed life into his nostrils. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Unless the Lord calls you home before then, these, um, these bodies, well, death is going to happen. And that death is the first one. Uh, it's not a pleasant thing. I've seen more than my share of death. It is what it is. I've seen family members die. I've seen people in the old job, more people than I can remember. I don't. I don't remember all the ones that have died. And that doesn't mean that I'm callous. I hope you don't believe that to be so. It just is what it is. It's part of, it's part of life, right? Uh, it was part of the job. It's a fearful thing. It's a fearsome thing. It's not a pleasant thing. There's very little dignity in death. Oftentimes there's pain that's involved. People who I've spoken to that I respect greatly, spiritually speaking, they tell me, you know what, I'm ready to go home when the Lord calls me. That's where I am. And I, I mean that. I'm ready to go home when the Lord calls me. And he says, your time is up. Man, if, if my time is up and I'm victorious, I don't want to spend another moment here uh, when the Lord calls me home. Um, and I say that with all of my heart, and I trust by the grace of God that that will remain my perspective. That being said, I'd rather not hurt. <laughs> you know, I'd rather not suffer the pain that is involved oftentimes in it It's a fearsome thing death is. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 8 says this. Um, It says, No one has the power over the spirit to retain the spirit. No one has the power in the day of death. There is no release from that war. Wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. Outside of the Lord Jesus' presence in your life, there's not a whole lot you can do. Different people do take their vitamins and they, they work out and they exercise and that sort of thing. But I mean, barring some kind of spectacular genes. I don't even know how old the oldest person ever was, but you're not going to say 150. You know what? Shame on me. 969. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in the modern era, in these days, in, in, you know, commonly speaking these days, man, most people don't make it to 100, right? 
outside of the Lord Jesus, outside of his, his being involved, that's just what's going to happen. There's, no one has power over the Spirit to retain it. It's going to be taken from you. And wickedness is not going to deliver you from that. Psalm 23 and verse 4 speaks of that fear that we might have, speaks to that fear we might have of death. In the natural, there's a reason for it. You know, <laughs> you know, if someone were to come up right now and they would hold my hands behind my back and someone else put a pillow over my face, I'm not going to say, take me, Lord, I will deal with this so well. You know, again, I said what I said. <laughs> I'll go home when the Lord tells me to, but if you're murdering me, I'm not confident that that's exactly what the Lord is wanting for the moment. And my natural inclination would be to gasp and to do what I could to continue life, right? That's not really what it's talking about here. It's just talking about the specter of death that sits and waits us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David said, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Death is that transition for a believer. It is that, well, that time when we leave this body, and to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So for the one who knows the Lord Jesus, when it's, well, when it's encountered in his time and in his will and the way that he determines it to be so, not by our choice and not by our election because we're tired of things or whatever, and let's leave the political issues there. When we trust him for it and we've sought him and we've looked for his appearing and he says, it is time. It is a blessed time. It is a time of deliverance. It's a time of joy. There's joy in the presence of the angels over everyone, over every sinner that repents. And there's joy also when he sees us uh, before him. There's joy that's present there. And so it should be for us. There need be no fear for us of death. Um, you look in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 35 in the second half of that verse there. It speaks of those ones who were faithful. Hebrews 11 being full of testimonies of faithfulness and and those ones who, well, looked death square in the face and looked at it as a means to an end. It says there in the second half of 1135, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. How come? That they might obtain a better resurrection. You understand that death can even be part of our finishing work. The process of death, if it's a long, slow, arduous task. My grandpa had cancer. Uh, it took him quicker than it takes some people. Uh, it was a terminal illness and... I was too young to really recognize it other than to see him and watch him essentially become skeletal before me when he was this big, bigger-than-life man as I was younger. But my understanding is he suffered a great deal. Uh, naturally speaking, the pain was remarkable. I've seen people suffer in pain. I watched Brother David. It hurt me every time I saw him walking back and forth there. Now, perhaps that wasn't near-death-type pain, but I don't like God's people to hurt. I don't like ones who are dear to me to hurt uh, and sometimes it is what it is, and the Lord's using it, right? Uh, I think that the Lord used that pain on my grandfather's behalf, on grandpa's behalf to help finish that work or give him opportunity to take that from the hand of the Lord. I believe that Brother Gary suffers with his pain so that he can offer it to the Lord as, well, sometimes it's those ashes that the Lord makes beautiful in us. When we have those things that we suffer and we offer in sacrifice to him, he turns them into something rather beautiful. 
And so we see these ones who were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. And yes, some did go ahead and go home and be with the Lord in those things. Uh, Death is a transition. Death is something that can be fearful, but death is not something that we need to fear when we take it from the hand of the Lord. Now, again, that first death can be instrumental as far as our victory goes. It can be a part of that that the Lord is shaping us in and, well, helping us to become that victorious believer that we're looking to be if we're given to partake of it, to partake of that death. As Smyrna is, as we read here in chapter 2. Looking at the context of what the Lord Jesus is saying here to Smyrna, you understand that Smyrna is one of two churches here in these, well, the second and third chapter here. One of these two, one of two of these seven churches here. I'll get my words about me here in a moment. Philadelphia and Smyrna were the two that you don't hear him correcting per se. You don't hear him chastising them. He doesn't say, "I have somewhat against thee," or "or your works aren't perfect before me." It's encouragement that's presented here to Smyrna. And to Philadelphia. Philadelphia, I'm not going to go there today, but we see them in the third chapter. And if you have studied that out for yourself, certainly if you've learned under those that I've learned under and and spent time here in this meeting before I came to pastor this, then you've heard that before, that Philadelphia is a presentation, a representation of those ones who are fully victorious and will be called and taken up and not see death, not go by the grave to the Lord. Uh... Not so for Smyrna. Smyrna is the contrasting one. They are fully victorious. They are those ones that we're looking to collect these seven together and gather for ourselves. They are those ones who will enjoy each of these seven blessings here. But they'll do it going by the grave. Uh, They'll see Christ return from heaven. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 2 again. We'll look at verse 10 and see some of the context that the Lord is presenting here as he's speaking to Smyrna. In verse 10, we see this, where he speaks to that church, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Sometimes, well, the Lord tells us uh, that suffering is just a part of our experience, right? We should expect that. He told them, it's, it's going to happen. Don't fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. A lot of potential things that this could be speaking to. But you understand that each one of us have our own sufferings that we will take fellowship with the Lord Jesus in if we choose to. And it will be what helps to shape us. We understand this. So we'll put that on the side for now. But look how he goes on. He says, be faithful until death. He doesn't say that to Philadelphia. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, what is he saying there in that statement, in that that sentence, just where he says, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life? It says a couple of different things that we can take from there. You can infer it if you choose, but I think it's just very plain. Be faithful until death means that they're going to see death. They're not going to be called up. Um, And when it says there that they'll receive a crown of life, it seems that that's going to be an award as a result of being faithful. Until that time. So what does that tell us? Turn to Second Timothy chapter 2 and stick your thumb there because we're going to read a verse there and we'll come back here in just a moment. 
This crown of life that he will award them as a result of being faithful until death. You understand, you have to understand this if you're going to understand what he's saying here, that faithfulness until death is not a prerequisite for salvation, right? Faithfulness until death. That is grace 101. I believe that the Lord Jesus died for me. I receive him as my savior. I'm grateful for it. As eloquent a prayer as, it, as, as, it, as you want it to be, or as simple. Jesus, come into my life. I'm a sinner. I need salvation. You've offered it to me. I accept it. Done deal, right? Done deal. It's set. You are a child of God. And oftentimes the case is, is that people set it aside. Um, walk away from it and that sort of thing. Faithfulness until death is not a requisite for salvation. So, what is it bringing for them here? In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul tells Timothy there, This is a faithful saying, if we, died for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. So leave your thumb there. Have we died with the Lord Jesus? Yes, we have. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, If you've accepted him as your Savior, you have died with him. Paul says this to the Galatians there in verse 20 of chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now we understand that Paul chose. Paul chose after he was smacked down on the road to Damascus and saw and believed and he was baptized and filled with the Spirit and began speaking and and preaching and all of those things. We understand he went on by faith. But you also understand that, again, you don't have to have done that in order to step before the Lord as a believer. I mean, the thief on the cross, we understand. Lord, remember me. That was simply him saying, you are the king, because he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You are the king. You have the capability of taking me with you. We're both dying. Remember me. And that was it today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't live faithfully all the time before and and that sort of thing. I mean, Christian 101, grace 101. But we can look at another passage, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. We understand John 5 tells us we have passed from death unto life. I, you know, I'm going to read that to you because I don't want to misquote it. But John 5.24 is your turning to Ephesians 2. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life, provided they're faithful from that point on, provided they believe from that point on, provided they step and they do all the things according to God's will. No, he who hears my word, Jesus is Savior, he is salvation and believes in him who sent me, I believe has everlasting life. No longer death, but is living eternally. I hope that I don't have to tell you that. But if I did, I'm grateful that I did. Because that's a blessing. That's a blessing. And that's basic, fundamental. And so we see it here in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together, past tense, with Christ, by grace you have been saved, in case you have any question, Paul's saying, and raised us up together, past tense, 
and made us, past tense, sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our spirit is there. Our, our conscience, consciousness is not. Our spirit is there with him. So going back to 2 Timothy, where I told you to put your thumb, gives a little bit more understanding there in verse 13, or starting verse 12. If we endure, if we continue then, faithfulness is not necessary for salvation, we understand. So, we've died with him. We've been raised up with him now. If we endure, we shall also reign with him, and a crown will be ours. Allah Smyrna, as we read in Revelation 2. If we deny him, deny him our faithfulness for a continued ongoing walk of faith, well, then he'll deny us too, won't he? He won't deny, I don't know, step away. No, he'll deny us that crown of life. He'll deny us, perhaps, some of the blessings that we read here in Revelation 2 and 3. But if we are faithless, Emily prayed this as well. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He fills up the lack there. I believe Jesus is my Savior. I'm going on my own direction. There's a big gap of faithlessness from the time that I've accepted him until the time that I breathe my last. The Lord has covered that gap with the blood of Jesus. And so he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. He will not deny himself our presence in eternity. If we deny him... He'll deny us the measure of riches and glory that might be ours. But if we're faithless from that point on, he remains faithful and he cannot deny himself. So understand, saints, most of God's people are going to go home to him via the grave. We understand that. Uh, Whether they win Christ or not, that will be the closest interaction that they have with death. Will be when they go to the grave. That first death that we well, that we will most experience. He who overcomes, however, shall not be hurt by the second death. So let's consider now why. How come that second death isn't going to affect us? Uh, the message of Smyrna, you understand here, is framed by death. If you read those passages that he speaks to, well, to this church, you see that there's a lot of mention of death. The concept of death is here, well, rather abundantly. You know, let's read it. Let's read it verses 8 through 11. Where it says, in the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. So let's just, let's just pause there. Jesus identifies his credentials. How come the second death isn't going to hurt you? How come the first death, which is only really walking through the valley of the shadow of death, it's not actually death running you over? Because Jesus purchased that well, that price, he paid it for us, he redeemed us. So we have that cold shadow coming over us. You know, they used to say back in the old days, you know, they get that shiver up their neck or something, like, oh, someone walked over my grave, you know, and they get all kind of superstitious and that sort of thing. And oftentimes you can, you can walk past a cemetery, you know, it's spooky, right? Halloween, some fog, some mist. You don't want to walk through a cemetery typically, you know, even if you don't really get the creeps, it's just kind of a... It's kind of a creepy place. There's dead people around. I'm going to be honest with you. This is going to be kind of, kind of janky sounding, but we were down in Paraguay. And we walked through a cemetery because it was different than ours. It's above ground. You can see some of those like in New Orleans and some of those other places where the water table's up high. And so they put them in vaults and mausoleums. And Well, some of those things were broken open. And as we were walking through, I don't mean to be crass, but you could smell the death. I smelled death a lot, and you could smell it. I didn't like it. We left, you know. 
Because it was just one of those things that it was just, it was an unpleasant reminder of the fallibility of this flesh and just the, well, the grossness that comes. The undignified, what this stuff becomes in the natural. Death is not, it's kind of creepy in and of itself. But when you read this here, saints, I don't know about you, but verses 8 through 11, I hear the Lord Jesus talking about death. Man, it's encouraging to me. He sets out what his qualifications are. And if I can use kind of a modern terminology, he owns death. He owned it. Uh, And almost quite literally. Look what else we see here. Well, he says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Man, talk about a flex. He was dead and the Lord brought him back up on the third day. Up and out he came. If you flip back just maybe a page in your Bible and read verses 17 through 18, he opened the book. This is one of the most triumphant, one of the most, I don't know, visibly stirring presentations here, how the Lord closes this whole book that is the Bible with the book of Revelation. And He does so rather remarkably. Obviously, Revelation is what it is. It's impressive. But I love how He presents Himself here to John. John who knew Him and loved Him and saw Him, uh, you know, watched, watched who He was as a person and loved Him, wanted to be with Him, leaned on his, on his breast and all of those things and then saw Him die and all that and then the Lord presents Himself. Uh, certainly, he saw him after he had resurrected and that sort of thing, but he looks different here. And this is, I mean, it's a triumphant one. John had heard a voice loud as a trumpet behind him. And these are one of my, one of my favorite passages to read. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He turned around to see him. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And then he again speaks of his qualifications and and who he is, what he did. I am he who lives and was dead, make no mistake. I was dead. And behold, I am alive, present tense forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. I have the keys of all of the things that are separate and outside of the things of heaven, the location of heaven, the place of heaven, all of that old place where the spirits would go. And, and well, indeed, what brings the spirits to that place? Death. You know, if you have a key to my house, you're one of the chosen few who essentially have the capability of entering into my home with or without my permission. You can practically come in at any time. Uh, sometimes I don't know Eli and Tati are coming over and I hear, and I get up and I get my karate pose going on. It's not true. I don't do karate anymore, but I don't realize they're coming over. And, you know, maybe they didn't text or something and they open up and I'm like, hey, come on in. Uh, Leave it to Beaver, man. Eddie Haskell. Remember him back in the day? He just pop up. Hi, Mrs. Gleaver. You know, and I was always like, I wish I had friends who could just walk in and just, you know, say hi and all that sort of thing. You know, because there's a familiarity there. Jesus isn't friendly and on familiar terms with death and Hades, but he's got the keys. He owns it. I've been there. I have complete access to... I own it, is what he's saying. He took them by force. He doesn't just walk and just bandy back and forth here, and he doesn't just take it as just, you know, just pop in for a visit or any of those sorts of things, but he owns death. He owns that the grave. Death has no hold over him, we understand. We sing it so often. It could not hold him. 
Uh, and it can't hold those ones who were buried with him. We'll turn to Romans chapter 8. Start winding this down. Romans chapter 8, and we'll read verses 10 through 11. Romans chapter 8 and verse 10 says, If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, we sing that song, If the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, uh, what happens then? He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. We used to sing that at a church we visited in Joppa, and I remember singing it. If the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, He will quicken your mortal bodies if the Spirit dwells in you. And they said, see, you can be healed from all of your sicknesses and that sort of thing. Well, as I got older, I realized quicken means give life. And this mortal body is going into the grave. And if the same Spirit that resurrected Jesus from the grave dwells in me, He's going to take, he's going to take my body up. Regardless of my colds and regardless of my cancers and regardless of those sorts of things, this, glory, this body's going to come up, it's going to be glorified. And he's going to quicken or put life into that because Jesus has control over the grave. Jesus has the keys to Hades and to death. And if I'm buried with him and I'm in league with the Lord Jesus Christ, then his power is willed on my behalf. We're buried with him in baptism, Paul says in Colossians 2.12, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. The first death is the valley of a shadow to us. And it is unpleasant. And it is cold. And it's dark. Might be painful. Certainly undesirable. And I'll even go so far as to say it's regrettable, its existence. But if Adam hadn't failed, I would have. That's just how it is. If Adam hadn't failed, any number of these other ones would have as well. It's unpleasant, it's cold, it's dark and all of that, but eternally so? No. It's not going, I'm not going to feel eternal death, eternal, eternal coldness, eternal separation from the Lord, because that's what the second death is, and it has no right to me, because Jesus overcame it for us. Uh, we might sniff the valley of the shadow of death. If the Lord leaves us here, we will certainly, we will feel that. But we will have no involvement with the second one. Back in our text in Revelation 2 and verse 11. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death is that eternity that is elected by the ones who reject the Lord Jesus. He offers to save from this, and they elect not to be saved. It's the opposite of eternal life, you might say. It's a place of eternal separation from the Lord. If one chooses to be separate from the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, then that's what is remaining. If Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, then there is no other way. There is no truth, there is no life. So you have eternal death on the other side. And that's what they will experience. And it won't be as miserable as it sounds. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. And it sounds miserable here. This is just one piece where, where it just makes it very plain to us. There's no getting around it. There's no explaining it otherwise. I do believe that there are certain measures of characteristics. I believe that there are certain measures of descriptions that we can read about the second death. I'll even go so far as to say that I believe that there are perhaps measures of measures of God's judgment in that second death. But I'll leave that 
for another time, perhaps. And if you want to have a conversation about it, we certainly can. But let's just say, let's just look at and see what the scripture says that we can take to the bank. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now listen, saints, we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And our rewards, or lack thereof, will be based on our works as we consider those with the Lord Jesus. But do you want to be judged by your works? I don't. I don't. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. The book of life is reserved from those for those ones who say, Jesus, I want to be yours because I don't want to be judged by my works. I will accept your gift that I be judged by your work. That's what salvation is. And Jesus said, I will do the work that will cleanse everyone and anybody. What your works cannot do. These ones will say, I'll, well, I'll be judged by my works. I think I was good enough. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And as I said a moment ago, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Saints, we're not going to be there. We're not. We're going to be already gone. The first resurrection will be complete. I gave a lesson on that back in... 2022, about a year ago. You can look it up online if you want to look into that further. But that first resurrection will be complete. God's people will be with Him, fully victorious or not. And these ones who will want to be judged or will have chosen to be judged by their own works will be so, and they will come up lacking. And they will be put in this place where the devil ultimately has been cast And God's people, all of God's people, fully victorious or not, will not touch that place. They will not be hurt by that. Shall not there, that term that's presented in verse 11, it's a double negative. When we say ain't no, that's not good English. That's not good usage of a double negative. And they counter each other out. In the Greek, that's not so. It's used for emphasis. It's almost saying no, never is what it's saying. That one, well, let me put it, let me read it to you. He who overcomes shall know, never be hurt by the second death. Hurt means injured or wronged. He who overcomes, and all of those ones who have overcome death simply by the blood of Jesus shall never, ever, absolutely, different translations say positively not, shall in no way, shall not be hurt at all, in no wise be injured, wronged, harmed even touched by the second death. Such penalty and punishment. Saints, it's been cast as far as the east is from the west, just as our sin has been. If death has such a limited power over us, well, because of the work that the Lord has done for us, saints, we might walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You understand that. You know we don't have to fear the evil that's associated with it. We might fear the pain that's there. We don't have to fear what's happening on the other side, certainly, because the Lord is waiting for us there. 
His rod and staff comfort us even in the midst of that walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The second death has no bearing upon us, has no injuring of us. It does not touch us. It's been cast absolutely far. If that's the case, then what should we, what should we be doing? How should we respond? This corruptible must put on incorruption, 1 Corinthians 15 says, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Well, Jesus has the keys to both of them. So the victory is in his hand, isn't it? The sting of death is sin. The strength of of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the foundational truth to being an overcomer. That's where it begins. Is that the second death cannot touch us and the first death only just a... Only just a shadow. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, Paul says in Romans 6.4. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should do what? We should walk in newness of life. As we consider these promises and these statements of blessing that the Lord is offering to him who overcomes, sometimes it comes back to that very first basic one. Second death can't touch you. It will not injure you. You or any other child of God. Understand that and let that be your foundation. Let it be your compulsion. Let it be your motivation. Let it be your basic fundamental shield of faith. When all else fails, you get behind that shield of faith and remember, I'm a child of God and the second second death will not touch me. And let that motivate you to lay hold of those other six that the Lord promises to him who overcomes.